Here's what's happening. We have been asking a question in our church over the last couple of Sundays. It was supposed to be two Sundays. It turned into three Sundays. And the question is this, and I want you to think about this with with me. What does it mean to be a praying church? So I'm not talking about what does it mean to be a praying Christian, although that's a really important question. The question we're asking is, what does it mean to be a praying church? And if you were here two Sundays ago, I shared with you some words from the New Testament that I think capture it. Remember, you might remember these words. I said, here's three words, fervent, constant, and corporate. And I told you those three words you're going to find all over the New Testament to describe a church that's a praying church. Fervent. In a praying church, people pray fervently. They pray like their very lives depend on it. And that's what we believe at River West. And they're praying constantly. That's, that's, a, that's a word about the frequency of that prayer. And then corporate. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to fill that in a little bit more, and I want to cast a vision for our church. That first sermon was sort of the the vision, the motivation sermon. This sermon is going to be very practical, and it's going to end very differently than how we normally end our service. In fact, we're not going to take communion this morning. When I get done preaching, we're going to take some time, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to reflect on what you're about to hear. And so here's the vision. I want you to think about this with me. I'm dreaming of a church where spontaneous moments of corporate prayer break out all the time. That's what I'm talking about. I'm dreaming of a church where when someone shares something big that's happened in their life, the people around them immediately go, we should pray about that right now. And they just, gra- and they just grab hands and they start praying. I'm dreaming of a church where when you get the phone call from your doctor and the news is not great, the very first thing you're doing is you're calling someone in your small group and they're praying with you. I'm dreaming of a church where when you show up on Sunday, by the time you get into the sanctuary, you've already seen some people ministering to one another. That's the kind of church we want to become. I have a friend in our church, his name is Jess Gilchrist, and he's a wonderful brother. And this, what I, the, the person that I'm describing is Jess. Now, Jess is a pastor's kid, all right? And that comes with a whole host of issues. But, um, but the thing that Jess knows is after a 9 a.m. service, the pastor is fried mentally and needing a little recharge. And so almost every Sunday, if Jess sees me, he's like, bro, come here. And he just prays for me before that 11 o'clock. And it's amazing. It's an amazing gift. That's the kind of church I'm talking about. Amen. I'm dreaming of a church where when you're in your community group and something is going on, somebody in the group says, we should stop right now and we should pray about that. And so what I'm talking about is not necessarily a church where there's a few people in the church who are really eloquent at praying and the rest of us let them kind of lead the way, although that's, that's, that happens. What I'm really talking about is a church where every single member of the church recognizes I get to be a part of this. I could show up on Sunday and I could actually believe that God might lead me into an opportunity to pray with someone. Did you know that in the Arab world, the Christians in the Arab world, 
When they go to church, they don't describe it as going to church. I don't know if you know this. In the Arab world, Christians say, we're going to pray today. That's how they think of it. We think of it as, I'm going to church. I'm gonna go to church and I'm gonna try to get from the parking lot to the sanctuary without dying, without slipping. And I'm going in there to learn or I'm going to listen to a sermon or I'm going to worship. But in the Arab world, the Christians say, we're going to pray today. I love that. I love that. But here's the problem. Some of you are very tense right now. And you're looking at me and you're like, this freaks me out, pastor. And here's what I want you to know. I'm so glad you're here. Did you know that my entire sermon is for you? Because, because I recognize for some of you, the, the idea of praying out loud with another Christian is like one of the scariest things. And so I'm gonna help you today. I'm gonna give you, I think, what's hopefully gonna be one of the most practical sermons you've ever heard on prayer. And I can summarize what I'm gonna say in one sentence. And it goes like this. If you ever find yourself praying with another sister or brother in Christ, there are always three simple things you can pray about. And I'm gonna put them on the screen so you can see them. Gospel gratitude, gospel affection, and gospel excellence. Very simple. In fact, we, we should never complicate prayer. God is not impressed with complicated prayers. God is not moved by prayers that are more eloquent than another prayer. What God wants is authentic prayers. Amen? That's what God cares about. He does not need you to be a wordsmith. He does not need you to be the perfect speaker. What he cares about is when a, when a, a Christian stops and authentically prays praise with another believer, and here's three things you can talk about. Gratitude, affection, and excellence. I, I didn't add the word gospel to be, to be neat or tricky. I added that word because what I'm gonna show you is we're not just talking about any old gratitude, we're not just talking about any old affection, and we're not just talking about worldly excellence. We're talking about gospel gratitude, gospel affection, gospel excellence. And so the place we're going to go is Philippians chapter one. And uh, I want you to pull out this little uh, prayer, the little prayer card you came in. Do you, can you grab that? That is not for taking notes, all right? Don't write on that yet. Um, some of you are like, oops, I already wrote all over this. Um, no, here's the thing. So what, what, at the end of my sermon, I'm going to give you an opportunity to spend some time in quiet and fill this out based on what you're about to hear. And then I'm gonna give you an invitation to bring this little prayer card back with you tonight to our prayer meeting. So I've got a slide that's gonna show you, we're gonna make this really practical over the next couple months. We're gonna actually get together and we're gonna pray. And I know a lot of you are really excited that we're doing this. It's tonight, the first one is tonight at 6 p.m. I'll tell you more about that later. I really want you to give this a chance and we're gonna make it so easy for you. We're gonna give you a chance to fill out this little prayer card. We'll do another prayer meeting in February and then we'll do a thing called 32 hours of prayer that'll take us up to Easter Sunday. I'll put that slide back up at the end of the sermon. But do this, open your Bible to Philippians 1, and let's just take a minute and talk about these three categories. Gospel gratitude, gospel affection, and gospel excellence. Gospel gratitude. Whenever you pray with another believer, 
always start with a moment of gratitude. Here's how Paul says it. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you see it there? The gratitude. The gospel brought tremendous joy to the apostle Paul. In fact, nothing stirred him up to thanksgiving and joy and prayers of gratitude like the little reminders of the people in his life who stood with him for the sake of the gospel. And every time he thought of those people, those people who were like, Paul, we're with you. And he thought about the Philippians. And every time he thought of the Christians in in, in Philippi, his heart got stirred up and he felt joy because these these were Christians who were like, Paul, no matter what you go through, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, We're going to stand with you, Paul, for the sake of the gospel. So notice he's not describing thankfulness for material things. He's not not expressing gratitude for his, his life circumstances. The guy was in prison. He's thanking God for people. It's totally okay when you pray to thank God for the, for, the, for the things in your life, for the circumstances, but very rarely did Paul ever thank God for things. There's not a single moment where Paul says, thank you, God, for that new chariot. I love it. It's so fast, you know? I love the rims. They're so sweet. Paul didn't care about that stuff, all right? Gospel gratitude is ultimately gratitude for people in your life. The people who care about the reputation of Jesus as much as you care about it. When's the last time you sat down and just thought, who are the people in my life who are locked arms with me and they care about Christ and they care about the reputation of Jesus and they're in this world to to perpetuate the spread of the gospel. I'm so thankful for those people. When's the last time you thanked God for that? I love Paul's prayer for the Philippians because of all the prayers in the Bible, this one captures my heart for this church more than any other prayer. You need to know this. At our church, the pastors, maybe at other churches, pastors view the congregation as an audience, okay? It's like a crowd, we gotta entertain them every week. That's not how we view you here. We view you as our partners in the spread of the gospel. And we view this moment as a moment where after a week of being out there, shining the light of Christ, we all come back together and we encourage one another and we recharge and we pray for each other. And then we go back out to bring glory to Jesus. Amen. And so we pray, we pray for one another and we thank God for each other and we lift each other up. Think of the people who have encouraged you the most in your spiritual life. Maybe it's your community group leader. Maybe it's your river leader. Maybe it's one of the pastors who shepherds the ministry that you're a part of. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of your children. Think of the people who are always spurring you on towards love and good deeds in Christ. Write them down in a prayer journal and start thanking God for them. It's so easy to do.
It's so simple. Think of the people who have expressed concern for your well-being. Think of the people who have had the courage to say that hard thing that you really needed to hear, even though it was uncomfortable in the moment. Do you know how much courage it takes to say something hard to another Christian because you actually really love them? Have you ever paused after that moment and thought, I'm so thankful that they said that to me. I would have never known. And then thank God for them. But here's what I want you to notice. Look at the very first phrase of verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance for those people. Do you see that? This is so critical. Gospel gratitude is always directed to God. You're not praying to the person. You're praying to the God who's turned them into that person. Amen? Amen. Have you ever had somebody pray for you and you start to feel like, I actually think they're trying to tell me something with this prayer. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, thank you, Lord, that you helped Adam see this week how much of a jerk he really is. And you're like, oh, okay, thank you. This is not gospel <laughs> gratitude prayer, okay? And you're, not, and you're not pumping that person up with your prayer. No one should ever leave feeling like they're amazing after you thank God for them. They should leave going, God is amazing because whatever God did in my life to encourage that sister in Christ, it was totally his grace, amen? So we say these prayers to God, not to the people that we're talking to. But gospel gratitude naturally leads to another category of prayer and I'm gonna call it gospel affection. I think that Philippians chapter one, verse eight might be the most remarkable statement in the entire book of Philippians. And I know that's a, big, that's a big statement. But let me read it for you. I'm gonna read into it. I'm gonna read seven and then eight. This is astounding. I wonder if you've ever read this verse and really thought about it. Here's what Paul says in verse seven. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now look at this. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That statement is stunning to me. Because when we think of Paul, we think of a guy who's very stoic and cerebral and driven. Paul's the bulldog. He's the church planner. Paul's on a mission. But you know, there was a very emotional side to Paul. And when I read that verse eight, the, the, the words that I, that I paused on all week long were these words, the affection of Christ Jesus. That is amazing. And Paul doesn't just say, I felt that. Look what he says. He says, God is my witness. He uses an, a, an ancient oath formula. He's like, I want you to know that what I'm about to say, I'm almost like saying it in front of God himself. God is my witness, how I've yearned for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? Gospel affection. Well, what I want you to do is look at verse eight. Let me show you something that's happening in verse eight. There are two people in verse eight who are feeling affection. Do you see that? When the verse begins, Paul's describing his own emotion. God is my witness, how I yearn for you. But by the end of the verse, 
Paul begins to describe another person who feels affection. And that person is Jesus Christ. And then Paul takes both of those affections and he brings them together in one experience as he prays for another person in his life. And here's what I think is happening. I think Paul was so united to Christ, so bonded with him, that he began to get in tune with the way Jesus feels about other people around him. And so Paul would look, he would look, he would think about one of his friends in Philippi. And he would go, I know how much I care for them, but you know what even matters more than that? How does Jesus Christ, the living, risen Lord, feel about that person? And then Paul would say, well, that's how I want to feel about them because I'm connected to Jesus. Isn't that incredible? And so Paul would sit down to pray. And I wonder, have you ever done this? Have you ever been praying for someone and then as you're praying for them, stop and go, how does Jesus feel about this person? What is the heart of Christ for this brother or sister? Well, that's how I want to feel about him. And then you, as you pray, you let that come out in your prayer for them. Brothers and sisters, do you know how powerful it would be to be on the receiving end of a prayer like that? Think about it. How, how life-changing to realize someone's praying for you and they're viewing you through the affections of Jesus Christ. That's profound. And we're living in an age and we're living in a culture where I think we need this more than ever. Last month, I was walking through Powell's, and normally when I walk through Powell's, I feel annoyed by all the books that are there, but every once in a while, I see one that I really like, and I grab this book. This is David Brooks. It's his brand new book, Hot Off the Presses. David Brooks, um, op-ed, he writes for the New York Times and the Atlantic. Um, he was raised in a secular household. He converted to Christianity about 10, 15 years ago. This book is so fascinating. It's called How to Know a Person, subtitle... The Art of Seeing Others Deeply. And here's what he argues. Chapter one is called The Power of Being Seen. And what he argues is that in his life as a journalist and kind of his decades of being a journalist, he's never witnessed a time in American history where people in our country feel more isolated from others than we do right now. With all of our social media, all of our technology, oh, we're all connecting, but we're not connecting. And what he argues is so much of the division and anger and fear and frustration is a result of the fact that in our country, like never before, many, many people feel like no one really sees them. So profound. Here's one quote I'll read. He says, he talks about how in our culture, we, we, we teach people all kinds of things in high school and college, but we never teach people basic skills like how to make someone feel like you really see them. And he says, there's one skill that lies at the heart of any healthy person, the ability to see someone else deeply and make them feel seen. 
to accurately know another person, to let them feel valued, heard, and understood. That is the ultimate gift you could give to another person and yourself. Isn't that profound? And what if it happened when you were praying for someone? He t- I'll, I'll tell you one quick story from this book and then you can read it. He tells a story about um, a company called Bell Labs and the executives in Bell Labs were, were looking at all their employees and they were noticing that, that there were different researchers in their company who for some reason were particularly successful. The most patents were developed by this list of different researchers and there didn't appear to be any kind of commonality. They came from different backgrounds, socioeconomic pasts, different ethnicities, genders, all these different things. So they they tried to study what is it that causes these specific researchers to be so like successful and they just seemed to do so well in their job and they couldn't figure it out. And then one day, one of the executives in Bell Labs started noticing that the same name was being dropped by all of these different researchers. And the name was a man named Harry Nyquist. Harry Nyquist, who was basically like a nobody a nobody in the company. And the executives are in there and they're in the boardroom and they're going, who is Harry Nyquist? And they started asking all these people and they realized what these different researchers had in common was that all of them had a habit of going out to breakfast with a man named Harry Nyquist. And Harry Nyquist was, he was just an engineer in the company, but he had this unbelievable ability of making people feel seen he would listen to them and he would say, you know what, you're really talented. Like you should try this. Like, have you ever thought about this? Harry Nyquist wouldn't pull up to the table to talk about himself. He would pull up to the table to listen to his friend and encourage them. And all these different people who spend time with Harry, who knows, let's let's make a t-shirt River West. Who is Harry Nyquist? (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Is that how people would describe you? And when you're praying with someone, do they feel like, wow, I really feel seen. And not just by them, but by the Christ that's in them. And folks, you can do this. So don't tell yourself, well, that's the apostle Paul. That's Elijah. No, no, no. Remember, Elijah is just a human being. And so is Paul. Just like you, just like me. We all pray to the same God. Amen. Amen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take an inventory of all the people that you might pray for in a given week. And you're gonna do it in just a minute. Write down their names. Your children, your spouse, your neighbors, people that you love, people that you work with. Think about their personalities. Think about their life circumstances. Think about what they're struggling with. Think about what they're hurting over. And then ask the question, how does Jesus see that person? and then start praying for them. Start praying for them. Gospel affection. Okay, but pastor, you're saying, how do I actually pray? Like, what should I actually say in the prayer? Well, I'm so glad you asked because that is what verses nine through 11 are about. So now we look at those verses with me. Verse nine. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more 
with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There it is. That's the prayer. I'll read verse 11 in a minute. That, those two verses capture the essence of how the apostle Paul would pray for other Christians. And there's a pattern there. You see it in all the, that same prayer shows up in Ephesians. It shows up in Thessalonians. It shows up in Colossians. Paul tended to pray the same kinds of things. I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may be able to approve what is excellent. It's a big, complicated sentence, but let me boil it down to you in one phrase. What Paul prayed for was gospel excellence. That's what he cared about. Excellence. And here's the thing. That's not a word that we use very much when we talk about our Christian lives or our relationship with Jesus. We don't tend to use the word excellent, but we should. And it's actually kind of strange that we don't because we pursue excellence in almost every other aspect of our life, right? We care about excellence at work. We want to kill it at work. We care about excellence in our relationships. We care about excellence in our physical fitness, in our diet, in our lawn care, in our house remodels, okay? We are people who care about excellence. Why don't we talk about excellence when it comes to my relationship with Jesus Christ and pray for other people about it. I love this, so great. So what is Paul talking about when he says, approve what is excellent? By the way, if you get this, let me tell you something. If you track with me for the next five minutes, this will transform how you pray for people because you're gonna start channeling your inner apostle Paul. And it's gonna, you're gonna pray with so much clarity for people because you're gonna realize these are, these are the priorities of the gospel, okay? So what does it mean to pray for someone that they could approve what is excellent in their life? I think there's a couple of clues. The first clue is that word excellent there in verse 10, look at your Bible. That word in the Greek it's an interesting word. It's a, it's a Greek verb that literally means to carry something all the way through. And it was used as a figure of speech to describe the process of, of deciding that this one thing is different than this other thing. And this thing is more important to me. It's the thing that's superior or most valuable to the point where I'm willing to carry it all the way through, all right? That's what Paul's describing. So the, the most helpful illustration would be, imagine that your house is on fire and, uh, and you don't have a lot of time and you gotta go into your house and you have to make decisions between many things in your life that matter to you, but you have to decide what is the one that I care the most about that I'm gonna carry it all the way through, 
So like in my life, it'd be like um, the Labrador, Winnie, or my Bible. And I would just pray about that. It's like the Bible's going, sorry, dog, right? You know, but in your life, you'd, you'd, you'd think about the stuff you own or the stuff that in your life, and you decide which of these two things is the most important to me right now. What's the most excellent? In your life, some of your decisions are not as clear and obvious as this thing is right and this thing is wrong. Those decisions are easy to make, right? What about those decisions where you have two really good options? Now, those are the ones that tend to to gum us up, right? And you need wisdom. Like, how do I decide between this job and this job? And they're both pretty good options. Or how do I decide between living here or living there? Sometimes it's not as simple as between right and wrong. It's a decision between what's good and what's best for me right now in my relationship with Jesus. And that's where we need help. And that's where we need to pray for each other. Here's another hint. So look, at, look back at your Bible. Whatever this excellence is that Paul's talking about, it must not be simple to discern because Paul indicates that it requires a love that's abounding more and more with knowledge and discernment. Did you see that? So look now, let me show you. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, so that you may approve what is excellent. That's his primary concern, but that's so that in the verse, it sends you back to verse nine to see what did he pray for so that people could discern, they could approve what's excellent. Well, what Paul prayed for was a love that abounds more and more in knowledge and discernment. Paul's saying, here's the way that you're gonna be able to live your life with the ability to figure out what thing is most excellent. You've got to have a love that's abounding in your life with knowledge and discernment. And that's something you could pray for yourself. And that's something you could pray for the people in your community group. And moms and dads, that's something you could pray for your children. It's something you could pray for your spouse. Notice Paul says, Paul's not just talking about love in this sort of gooey, gummy, you know, it's love that's balanced with knowledge. Paul's like love that abounds, but it needs to abound with greater and greater knowledge. Paul would not recognize the way we talk about love today, where we often say, yeah, love, love, you know, truth is the enemy of love or doctrine is the enemy of being loving. Paul would say, what are you talking about? You can't actually ever love someone without knowledge. You got to know them to love them, right? That's so true. I don't love Kathy less the more I get to know her. The more I get to know her, I love her more and more and more. When I stood at the altar with Kathy, um, I thought I could never love this woman more than I do. Oh, I was young and I was naive. And then, and then we spent the last decades and I watched her teach high school art for 11 years. And then I, I watched her raise our daughters and I watched her suffer through cancer for a year. I watched her suffer 
with grace. And I realized I love her more today than I've ever loved her. And the same thing is true in your relationship with God. The more you grow to know Christ, the more you love him. And the more you grow to know the people in your life, the more you love them. And so Paul says, when you pray for love in the church, pray for a love that's balanced with knowledge. And specifically what he's talking about in this verse is the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the gospel. Paul's saying Christ is gonna return and and we're waiting for him to return. And so what we need is we need to pray for each other that we would grow and make choices that are excellent so that we would become more and more and more like Jesus. See those words? Blameless, righteous, holy. Paul's talking about the Christian life. I'm living the Christian life. I'm making choices between things and they're good choices, but some of them are excellent and they move me more quickly to be like Jesus. And Paul says, here's what I want you to do, church. I want you to pray for each other about that. Pray for the people in your life about that. I'll say one last thing. This is gonna be very obvious. The simple fact that Paul prays for this should be a reminder that it requires God to do something supernatural. Because if God didn't need to be a part of it, Paul wouldn't pray for it. Isn't that interesting? So you say, Paul, so you're saying that in order for, my, in order for the people in my life to abound in love and be able to approve what's excellent, you need to show up in their life and do and do supernatural things. Paul would say, exactly. So start praying for that. Pray for that for your kids. Pray for that in your marriage. Pray for the people in your small group. And we're gonna start right now. And so I told you, the sermon is gonna uh, end a little different. We're not gonna go to communion. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab that little prayer card, okay? And then I want you to grab a pen. And if you don't have a pen, raise your hand because ushers are gonna start moving around the sanctuary, handing out pens. And here's what I want you to do. And I'm gonna give you about five to seven minutes. What I want you to do with that card is start filling out. How would you pray for people in your life using these three categories? Gospel gratitude, gospel affection, and gospel excellence. So in gospel gratitude, you start writing down prayer request. Who are the people that you're thankful for right now? Who are the people that have encouraged you in your relationship with Christ? Who are the people that you've locked arms with? And just write, just write out little prayer requests to God for them. And then move to gospel affection and think about all of your neighbors, people in your life. Who, who's on your prayer list? And then take a minute and imagine, now how does Jesus feel about them? And then just write down whatever comes to mind, all right? And then when you get to gospel excellence, you know, open your Bible and, and write out some specific people that you know. I, my, this person in my life, I feel very led to pray for them, that they would abound in love, that they'd be able to approve what's excellent. And just pick some folks, pick some prayer requests. 
Um, I'm gonna give you about five to seven minutes to do that. Mike's gonna play quietly up here. The worship team's gonna play. And um, enjoy this time. And then I'll come back up in a few moments and I'll tell you more about the prayer meeting tonight.